Inspired by a genuine curiosity and love for people, art, and family, and a willingness to explore, Anton Yelchin began a career as an actor at age nine. Through his writings, photography, and original music, as well as interviews with family, friends, and colleagues, including John Cho, Zoe Saldana, Kristen Stewart, and Chris Pine, Love Antosha is a celebration of the actor's extraordinary, unfinished life. Opening Friday, August 2nd at LA's New Art Theater, and Friday, August 9th at NYC's Quad Cinema. Visit AntonYelchinDoc.com for more information. Save 50% on a subscription to Film Comment magazine through our limited-time-only flash sale. Founded in 1962, Film Comment is the home of independent, non-profit film journalism. Our special New York Film Festival issue features the essential movies of the season. Go to filmcomment.com slash subscribe for a year of Film Comment for $14.95 instead of $29.95. Offer ends August 11 at midnight. That's filmcomment.com slash subscribe. Support Film Comment and support independent film journalism. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. This is the latest edition of The Rep Report, our regular roundup of repertory film programming around town. This time, we focus on a series that looks at America through the eyes of artists who were born abroad. The name of the program is Another Country, Outsider Visions of America, and it's running now at Film at Lincoln Center. The range of filmmakers is truly expansive. Chantal Ackerman's News from Home, Lars von Trier's Dogville, John Woo's Face Off, Jane Campion's In the Cut, and many more. Each filmmaker brings something distinctive and personal to America's inspiring myths, as well as its strange, wonderful, and brutal realities. To discuss the series, I brought together one of its organizers, Thomas Beard, programmer at large at Film at Lincoln Center and co-founder of Light Industry, and Becca Volker, film comic contributor and doctoral student at Harvard. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is the latest edition of our Rep Report, short for Repertory Report, uh, which is just a roundup of all the wonderful things showing at repertory houses and uh, other cinemas in New York City. Uh, it's 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 kind of remarkable any given time what's showing here, um, so I just thought, why not make a podcast about it? Uh, for this particular episode, we're going to focus a little bit on something at Film at Lincoln Center, uh, the Another Country series, um, which is, I mean, it's like the equivalent of four different series in one in terms of the span of the type of films it has. Um, but to talk a little bit about it, I have two guests. Uh, to begin with, I have Thomas Beard, uh, programmer at large for Film at Lincoln Center and co-director of Light Industry in Brooklyn. Um, and we also have Becca Volker, PhD student at Harvard University and contributor to Film Comments. And, 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 and Becca we, we thought it would appropriate you would be here partly because uh, you are actually well we talk about I have to talk about the premise of the series first a bit oh yeah so yeah. the series is about the manifold ways that foreign and immigrant auteurs uh, of the modern era like since the 60s have depicted or otherwise apprehended America uh, and this and and this is looking at film I mean looking at films from all, both documentary, fiction, everything in between. Action blockbusters, yes. early video art. Yeah, it's a real genre hopping affair. Yeah, and uh, and not to out Becca, but Becca, <laughs> Becca hails from another part of the world. On my passport, it says non-resident alien. Yeah, so I just want an authentic voice uh, <laughs> to testify. I come with the accent for free. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I'm sure that, you know that we could have plenty more um, chapters about the series and what we'll, we'll highlight here. So I encourage you to look up on the website, everything that's on it. But um, uh, Thomas, could you start us off just about talking about the inspiration for the series? Yeah. So uh, I organized the series with Dan Sullivan, who's also here uh, at Film at Lincoln Center, um, but also with uh, Shanai Javeri. Uh, he uh, recently edited a book, uh, which is available uh, here at Lincoln Center called America Films from Elsewhere. Uh, which covers a lot of the same territory as the series, 
um, you know, it's considering these outsider uh, visions of America. Uh, it actually follows on a related project that Shanai uh, did a few years back called Outsider Films on India. So looking at uh, Jean Renoir's uh, uh, The River, Pasolini's uh, Notes on a Film about India, and so forth. Um, and there are a lot of really incredible contributors. Uh, you know, Nicole Bernays has uh, a great essay on Angela Davis' Portrait of, of a Revolutionary. Uh, Hilton Alls uh, has a piece on Fassbinder. Uh, Jay Hoberman has uh, uh, an essay on Dogville uh, and so forth. Um, so yeah, it was the, the book uh, served as a kind of roadmap for the program. Although there are a number of uh, films that are featured in the book but are not in the program and uh, vice versa. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of like a companion project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when I, I mean, we could dive in anywhere with this. I, I don't know if you have anything, any particular theme you want to want to latch on to or lasso. Oh, well, I mean, I guess, yeah, there are over 30 films in the series. So, uh, the territory like America is vast, but, uh, one of the things that I, you know, hadn't occurred to me when we started working on it, uh, but that became very clear as the lineup was coming together is that there are, uh, several films, uh, in the show by European auteurs, uh, who make these English language efforts, which are horribly received, uh, when they show in America, but then, years later Mm. they're dramatically reappraised uh and we see them very differently you know Mm -hmm. so you know model shop flop zibritsky point disaster ditto renee's providence Mm -hmm. but now we're like oh wait model shop is maybe one of the best uh (laughs) demi movies or like maybe zibritsky point is the dark horse of antonioni's filmography so that was very interesting to me like how like that you know how this was also an occasion to uh uh revisit you know some neglected works by uh major filmmakers but that wasn't necessarily what i had in mind to begin with it just kind of occurred as the program was yeah uh coming together yeah i i that that kind of reminds me of one of the things that jumped out at me about a lot of the titles between zabriskie point and um and uh, um, model shop, um, California. It's even more just just America, but California really seemed to capture the imagination of Europeans. Uh, it's funny to talk about Europeans, but <laughs> European auteurs, um, like in the '60s and '70s. Um, in as it, I don't know. It, in in it's it's strange that it could feel that that new. I mean, it had been around for a while. Like Hollywood was broadcasting its own kind of vision of this strange fantasy land just through the movies um but in this case it it gone to another level it's kind of funny that this is happening when once upon a time in hollywood is coming out because in some ways the visions that that you know demi has or or antonioni um i mean to a certain extent they're kind of putting some of their own ideas on on it but there's just this general idea of this land of possibility that almost exceeds i mean the idea of america itself uh, as well i don't know and maybe a, a form of mythology, like yeah. a, an America, which I'm, I'm not sure whether it was like that. I know that um, Vendor's Paris, Texas was very much Vendor's Paris, Texas, not necessarily how the space was. Or Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's also a way, I mean, Paris, Texas is, I think, an interesting case, too, because it makes you uh, think about what, uh, an outsider vision of America really is, or is there a kind of outside mm. uh, mm-hmm. to America in a cultural sense, right? That uh, especially for someone of Vendor's generation, he grows up inundated with, you know, images of American consumer products, American popular entertainment. You know, he's raised on a steady diet of uh, Westerns, you know, so he's and kind of an outsider in a literal sense. You know, he's this German filmmaker making uh, films in and about uh the u.s but in a sense you know uh the the reach of american (laughs) cultural hegemony uh has uh you know always uh always been there yeah well it's interesting it's like a flip side and i think there's an element of this in the series too but 
like a vendor's love of America kind of grounded a bit in, 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 in ideas that, you know, might seem kind of hokey now, like rock and roll, the open road, you know, but also, I don't know, were the basis of a lot of American 70s, 70s American fi- films. Um, and the flip side of that would be a view of hegemony, the, the imperialistic side of that. But but for vendors, it's it's definitely still more of a, you know, romanticism or forlorn if, if a bit melancholy or forlorn but it, it's, it feels yeah. like a landscape film and in, in oh yeah that's true yeah. So, yeah really going after the driving scenes and of course he's interested in walking as well but it's it's very much uh from a car window and actually right. not the i went to texas a few years ago and was very disappointed not to find it anything like vendors <laughs> <laughs> um but i think one of the things that I like about the program is that there are also some thoroughly de-romanticized visions of America right. and also of the American landscape. I mean, Peter Watkins' mm-hmm. Punishment Park is maybe mm-hmm. one of the more pronounced examples here. Uh, and for those that uh, aren't familiar with the film, uh, it was made by uh, Peter Watkins, a British filmmaker in the early 1970s uh, in California. And... It imagines a not too distant future in which this uh, sort of civil unrest has increased in America. And in response, uh, trial by jury has been suspended and is replaced instead by these tribunals to deal with, you know, activists and militants and adjutants of all stripes. And so we begin with uh, all of these anti-war activists who are rounded up you know, they face the tribunal and they're all forced to choose between something like 20 years in prison or a few days in Punishment Park. And one by one, they say Punishment Park. And what we <laughs> learn is that Punishment Park is this sort of ghoulish training exercise for cops and national uh, guard members where they uh, give the prisoners a head start and uh, chase them across this pitiless desert terrain. And it's shot, you know, as though it's, I think a BBC crew is covering it. And as you might imagine, it sort of devolves from there, <laughs> you know, but it's like, it's a really uh, brutal, if uh, alarmingly kind of familiar uh, image of uh America and it's you know and of, and of American policing um, so I think uh, films like that I think have a contrapuntal role yeah. in the series um, can I ask a, a question about, oh yeah. about that so where was it was it broadcast in Britain how did it do in America if it was shown here you know I actually don't know very much about the exhibition history of uh, uh of that film. I mean, I know that Peter Watkins has always had, uh, you know, a kind of limited ex- exposure relative to other filmmakers. I feel like yeah. there's always an article that's like, Peter Watkins, the greatest filmmaker you've never heard of. But it's like, <laughs> but there's just all, like every year there's a new article that's, you know, telling you that you don't know who Peter Watkins is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think that relative to a lot of other uh, films in the series, uh, its exposure is more limited. Um, but I know that here at Lincoln Center, we've been pu- pushing him pretty hard because actually Punishment mm-hmm. Park appeared in the non-actor uh, oh, yeah. a little while ago That's also. Right. Um, because interestingly, Watkins cast the film with non-professional performers largely uh, uh, in regard to their political sympathy. So you had you know mm-hmm. actual activists playing the activists, like actual... You know, uh, cops, law uh, and order folks. Yeah, and so that <laughs> when you see the kind of hatred that people have for each other in this, or you see the antipathy that people have for one another in the film, it's pretty real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's he he really didn't pull any punch. I mean, even a few years before this, he had um, what's it called, War Game? Is that what it's called? Oh yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting thinking about the America he pictures in Punishment Park because it's kind of a, a similar barren landscape to what you might see in parts of Zabriskie, Zabriskie Point, you know, yeah. um, where there it's almost like this, I don't know, projected dream space or something that people are going out on their like 
you know, what do you call it when you go into the outback, you know, like your wander walk or something, you know. Um, and but but in Punisher Park, it's 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 enclosed. It's open, but it's totally enclosed. And, and it's and it's something where, yeah, it's a punishment park. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's and it's a, and I think that in Babette Mengold's The Sky on Location, there's this complicated relationship to the mm. landscape uh, services again, but in, you know, a, a different uh key because she you know she's coming uh you know as uh you know as a as a foreigner as a french filmmaker and uh she said that this was like really an asset to her when she was making this film because she wanted to map uh the changing seasons in the west you know a kind of chromatic geography and her friend in arizona says there are no seasons in the west and she (laughs) says this is not true but then also mixed in with uh this this, these really kind of gorgeous looks at uh the landscape you also have a very keen uh meditation on its history you know so Mm. um there's in this film and elsewhere we find that the majesty of these landscapes can kind of in in a way never be separated from their often violent Mm. uh political history uh so i feel like that's uh another aspect uh, that keeps coming up in the series yeah. With so many of the films in the series, I was thinking about conversation. Their conversations between this filmmaker who's coming to an adopted country or a country they're visiting, um, and be finding themselves in conversation, comfortable or, or less so, with the landscape, with layers of history in the landscape, or cityscape mm-hmm. in the case of um, Chantal Ackerman, News From Home, uh, which is also full of conversation, I feel like, with... Um, the letters that she reads aloud that her mum sent her from Belgium while yeah. she was in New York and maybe a conversation through time as well and about mm. what does it mean to be abroad for several years. I think by then she'd maybe been back and forth over about five years. Mm. Um, yeah. Conversation with oneself as well, of course, as a an artist working abroad and maybe in Ackerman's case also working between formalist registers of film and something much more subjective um diaristic mm. yeah i also i um thinking of news from home uh that particular show is a slightly unusual one but it's one that i wanted to be uh about a kind of conversation between three very different filmmakers uh vivian dick manuel delanda and ackerman mm. um because they're they're as their their styles and their sensibilities are all very different, but they're all uh, these young expats, you know, living in drop dead seventies New York, <laughs> and the films uh, each in their own way I think are a, a way of them navigating their relationship to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so in Ackerman's case, as you said, you have like the letters from her mother counterposed with these lonely street scenes. Uh, in Vivian Dick's Guerriere talks, uh, you have her interviewing all these women from her downtown demi on Super 8 uh, sound, like no wave icons like Pat Place and Lydia Lunch. Um, that, yeah, Vivian Dick is sort of like the fulcrum between Manuel Delanda and John Del Ackerman, mm-hmm. I think. Um, uh, and then Manuel Delanda's is like a, just a really punk movie where he's defacing all of these uh, subway or uh, yeah, like subway advertisements and like cutting off parts of like one face and then plastering it onto another. Um, and yeah, so I, I wanted that uh, to be uh, yeah, like a, a different way of seeing something like news from home, you know, mm-hmm. like it's like that, not just uh, cause I think that that's uh, and that can be especially important when you're dealing with maybe some of the more familiar titles, um, but, uh, but there are also kind of more direct, I think, conversations in the film, like, uh, in the case of, uh, someone like, uh, Haley Jarima, let's say, or the LA Rebellion and, mm-hmm. uh, a movie like Angela Davis Portrait of a Revolutionary, because here you have, uh, 
Yolanda Deloire, who's kind of involved in French avant-garde circles. She decamps to L.A. for film school, but she's studying there with uh, Drima, Charles Burnett, uh, and co. And uh, when she begins making this film about Angela Davis right after she comes out as a communist, provoking the ire of administrators, uh, it's with her fellow students that she's... uh, you know, you know, starts to make this movie. So you have, yeah. So here you have like this connection, which I really didn't know about until I read Nicole Burness's essay on the film. You know, between this movement in France and this movement in uh, Los Angeles, that usually would have been thought of as sort of otherwise separate affairs. To go back to the idea about how so several of these films are now being received with much more interest than they were when they first came out. And something to do with maybe a conversation that we're having now in this program is inviting audiences at Lincoln Center to have with the past and why it would, why is that happening now? And why was it not happening then? Is it because it's more comfortable now to look at images of America from 76 or from 80 or in the kind of pattern of the past on it? Or is it that there's something to do with this clustering of films, which is many of them are coming from the 70s and 80s, which is speaking to where we find ourselves in the present moment in terms of issues of populism or thinking about borders, mm. thinking about land. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a very um, much a, a series of our moment or a s- series that is in conversation with... Uh, the kind of polit- the political issues of our moment, you know, the, um, it uh, unfurls at a time when the political discourse is rife with xenophobia. I mean, not just in America, but elsewhere. Um, so, uh, I would I would hope that it would would be, you know, timely in that regard. Though at the um, at the same time, I feel like this story of the outsider bringing their perspective to bear on America is like as old as. America itself mm-hmm. um and I mean we're much older than <laughs> than cinema you know um Alexis de Tocqueville uh at all um but there's also some, the, the 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 timeline you mentioned you know looking at the the 70s or the 80s uh the 90s uh is notable too because it begins after uh, another very important era of uh, emigre directors in Hollywood, you know? Um, so in a sense, it's kind of continuing that tradition, but it also is something, a totally different chapter, because with very few exceptions, all of these filmmakers are working outside of a Hollywood studio system, as opposed mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Fritz Long and uh, Preminger and so forth. Yeah. I, and, and, the, and that earlier wave is interesting because... It, I, th- I think when people talk about, you know, what Fritz Fritz Lang or, or Billy Wilder or something, it's usually in terms of them kind of importing uh, or bringing with them some some European sensibility. Uh, where in this case, for the series, it feels a bit more like people seeing it through their eyes. But um, I mean, like you know, if you think of like Fritz Lang, well, I don't know, a certain degree of cynicism or something, or Billy Wilder is, you know, that's that's what they were bringing with them. Yeah. But, yeah. Although I think that here you also have. Uh, an imported aesthetics. I mean, I think that oh, yeah. uh, Face Off with John Woo, where you definitely have sure. a kind of Hong Kong action film sensibility being imported uh, to the U.S. I think also something like Model Shop too, where it's like mm-hmm. yeah. this candy-colored right. uh, yet still rather plangent love story set in a port city. I mean, it's uh, you know, um, or is LA is a port city, right? <laughs> it's like a. Uh, um, <laughs> But it's it's so it has I think also like a lot of affinities with um, mm-hmm. uh, you know with his uh, with his other work um, yeah I suppose maybe Zabritsky point too you can you know see this as uh, you know importing uh, Antonio something about Antonio's sensibility into an American uh, context. Uh, but it does feel it does feel different though. Like it seems like it's it's obviously related to that uh, earlier history. But I think that mm-hmm. basically, from like looking at the past fifty years, you have uh, new kinds of independent cinema um, 
that are diverging from uh, that studio model. And this survey really tracks that development. Yeah. But but another thing that, that I'm curious about is is filmmakers who are approaching America with a certain kind of just fascination, like this land of oddity and curiosity. And and, and maybe that goes back a bit to the, to the California idea where it's like, you won't believe the stuff they're getting up to <laughs> over there. Um, and I mean, a, a, a couple of films that are kind of, you know, kind of classics like in, in that respect are the, the, the two Werner Herzog uh, medium length movies that you have in here. Um, How much would could it would Chuck Chuck um, and God's Angry Man. God's Angry Man. I saw these last night. <laughs> and would you like to report back from? Well, very peculiar. Um, <laughs> but I feel like that's what Werner Herzog um, went in in searching for and obviously went, and I think it, it does dovetail with uh, what you were saying before about going with a specific, um, perhaps, set of questions in mind. And I, I feel like Herzog was thinking about, obviously, capitalism and unusual ways in which it traces itself or it, it maps out on people's lives, um, occupations and physical spaces, I suppose. So. Yeah, how much wood? Can we shorten it to that so we're not... Okay. <laughs> how much wood? How much wood? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, yeah, and I think that how much wood is uh, also uh, a significant part of the program because it essentially is a reversal of a more familiar documentary dynamic, you know, where America is... Where America and American subjects are the kind of exotic... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, ethnographic eth ethnographic object yeah. um, on view, uh, and in and and it really is quite in the case of uh, how much wood, which takes place at uh, the oh, World Championship Livestock Auctioneers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, which happens in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I was imagining yeah, in New Holland, Kentucky Pennsylvania. Or exactly. Yeah. It is. Um, uh, yeah, it, it it is rather uh, exotic. I mean, Herzog says that uh, every I'm trying to remember how he puts it, but he says that every uh, you know culture develops its own extreme form of language, and uh, this extreme form of language um, is uh, like the poetry of capitalism, the mm -hmm. um, rapid fire right. uh, speech patterns of. Um, these auctioneers yeah i'd read that he had said that and that was what i went into the film expecting but in fact it's so much more musical than than poetic i think i really felt oh. like they mm -hmm. the auctioneers were singing these prices out and that spoke uh also in surprising ways or i hadn't expected to see such a crossover with god's angry man which is mm. about this um TV evangelist in in California again, Gene Scott, and the way he, on this extraordinary TV show that he had, is kind of delivering Jeremiah's in ever greater passion and anger. Um, but he reads out loud these donation uh, figures of money, basically. So he is sounding just like one of the auctioners, albeit a bit mm. slower, when he's reading out five hundred dollars, <laughs> one thousand dollars whatever that's interesting yeah very very interesting um parallel between these films oh totally and also i feel like televangel televangel televangelism feels to me like a uh a very american idiom right <laughs> <laughs> combining television and evangelism yeah. the perfect combination yeah it, it's just this inter i don't know it's interesting to see this fascination with what business you know what the forces of business do when they like warp when you know some institution whether it's like religion or, or even just something more familiar like you know i don't know farmers and, and them selling cattle <laughs> like in the american system even the, Amer the american system somehow does something to that you know even that something as familiar as that i think herzog's been quite um calculated quite precise in the way he keeps the church in god's angry man as quite a diffuse abstract thing mm. so we hear the the evangelist talk about his church but we don't really know what that means the extent of it we know that the church owns multiple businesses that the church is embroiled in several lawsuits at the current time but 
we're not given that much more than that. And I feel like that's a way, that's Herzog's way maybe of wanting to talk about capitalism again, exactly mm. like you're saying, the way it's playing out or nesting in these different um, institutions. Yeah. And, and um, I mean, there's, there's also a kind of s- sweet moment where he's, he's testing out his German with, with oh yeah with, with, remember with with like uh, the the amish who speak i guess pennsylvania dutch or something like that and <laughs> it's not working <laughs> um but but i i like that uh, as well because uh, i mean this is all about language uh, as well and um i think that's another strand running through the series a bit that that process of translation there's an extraordinary moment when language breaks down in that film though sorry to yeah. keep on it for a moment but when he holds his TV audience and the TV uh, studio crew hostage, basically. And he's waiting for more money to be uh, donated live on the show. And this $600 that he's waiting for is not coming in. So he, <laughs> he ho- essentially he holds us as audience hostage as well. We're waiting for, th- for this and he goes quiet and he stares at the TV camera. We <laughs> stare back at him in this frontal shot. And you see the people in the studio around him crying and dabbing at their eyes. And then finally he explodes and he yells and the more than $600 come through. It's very tense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God's angry man. Um, it's interesting. That's, I, you know, I never really connected it, but yeah, that's just a few years after, I don't know, taxi drivers, you know, God's angry man. Oh. Save 50% on a subscription to Film Comment magazine through our limited-time-only flash sale. Founded in 1962, Film Comment is the home of independent, non-profit film journalism. Our special New York Film Festival issue features the essential movies of the season. Go to filmcomment.com slash subscribe for a year of Film Comment for $14.95 instead of $29.95. Offer ends August 11 at midnight. That's filmcomment.com slash subscribe. Support film comment and support independent film journalism. Through his writings, photography, and original music, as well as interviews with his family, friends, and co-stars, Love Antosha is a celebration of the extraordinary unfinished life of actor Anton Yelchin. Opening Friday, August 2nd in L.A. and Friday, August 9th in New York. Visit antonyelchindoc.com for more information. The the language um, also crops up with Poto and Cabango. Oh, yeah. That kind of fuses with the, 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 I don't know, all the weird things that are happening in California. There it's, it's, I mean, it turns into something a bit more uh, complex just because, you know, it's, it's delving into, to, I, I don't even know what that is trying to say something, that movie. He's just fascinated by this idiolect that these that these two two kids have come up with um and it's not clear if he's trying to say that it's because of the lifestyle there or, or somehow they're stranded or not i don't know thomas you were gonna say something. no well, yeah just that it, like i think that uh that film is remarkable because it feels almost like it's more a movie around its subject than about its mm-hmm. subject if mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah. you know it's like uh uh or that the, the um and for, yeah, for those that don't know Poronko Bengo b- begins uh, with Garan's interest in these two young uh, twin girls who appear to have uh, developed a private language that's totally indecipherable to anyone but them. And, um, and the title of the film is what they call each other. It's exactly. Their names. <laughs> the ultimate um, inside, my favorite title inside joke. <laughs> but then, uh, and then what it, be, it becomes clear to him that it's not like actually this totally unique private language, but in fact, this strange come together of you know uh other members of their you know their their, their families like accented english or dialect um that then they've kind of cobbled together and uh an idiosyncratic if not totally unique uh way but then it uh becomes also about like his you know role as like someone coming to the u.s and about uh class relations in america like so it becomes you know concerned with uh many things beyond what would appear to be its immediate uh subject yeah yeah there 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 is a sense that somehow this strange unique case is giving us some uh, vantage point we might not otherwise have um, i suppose very very abstractly it's a metaphor for how we all use language and then a more exaggerated case is going on coming to France, coming from France to the States in 
um, maybe having to make his own way and figure out what this language is. And then he's seen how this, an extrapolation of this in a way mm. plays out in these two girls. And yeah, I think, I think that's right that he's um, wanting to counteract how they were represented in the popular press as oh, being right. this kind of myth of wild child yeah. um, right. aberration. And he's saying, actually, isn't this the way we all use language? Yeah. Yeah. And that speaks back to the Herzog idea of how agricultural um, industries use language in a particular way or evangelism uses language in another particular way. They're all idiolects in a way. Yeah. I I also love that um, he kind of foregrounds his own foreignness a little because of his yeah. voiceover where he has, I just, he has this beautiful accent. I, I you know. He really, I was just thinking <laughs> about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know. They just kind of fuzzily moving between words. <laughs> I just, I, I like it. You get this sense of him um, kind of, as he's musing aloud and, and muddling through things. Um, I, don't I think know. that happens in so many of the films in this ser- series, whether it's um, with the Ackerman and her accent mm. reading the letters mm. or um, the very German voiceover for Herzog, oh, right, which yeah. um, <laughs> they add to it because it's just sometimes so jarring and so interesting <laughs> then to, to have that as this lens. And it's, I suppose it's the... Um, the audio counterpart of what we're seeing, you know, the the cliche of seeing something through somebody else's eyes and right, seeing so you, you see it through someone else's voice as well, I guess in a way. Um, I feel like we've gone through a lot of these movies somehow uh, by by now, but I, I know there's probably something I'm I'm missing. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, one of the things that I, is maybe worth noting is that uh, we see America very much shot on location in mm. a number of these films. But sometimes the geographies are more imagined. So um, America sort of exceeds its borders in that sense in the series. Um, uh, The Great Silence, for instance, the Mm -hmm. spaghetti western, you know, is supposed to be late 19th century Utah right before the Great Blizzard. But actually it's the snowy expanses of the Dolomites, for instance, or... um, uh, uh, Strobin Huye's class relations is... Uh, you know, based on Kafka's America, but it's largely shot in Hamburg, which is weirdly fitting because Kafka also never right. went to America. <laughs> um, and uh, L.N. Rene's Providence, um, of course, that's going to be, <laughs> the com- you know, a complicated composite geography. Right. You know, he wanted uh, originally to shoot in New England, but it proved too prohibitive. So he found this house that an American couple owned designed by an American architect. Um, so he says it's like French light, you know, American house. Mm-hmm. And that's like the house, the estate where Providence is set. <laughs> um, and it's also shot in Albany and in, uh, Pro- and in Providence, but also I believe like Brussels, Antwerp and London. And they're all mm. kind of blended together. Um, so it's like a, an abstracted or a refracted America. Mm-hmm. And I think Renee also said something oh. about how uh, Hi. he liked when he would be, say, like in London, and part of it would remind him of New York, you know? Uh-huh. So this way that, you know, an image of America is kind of like bleeding into right. other things. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting how that happens like you say you could be in London and think wow the corner of this street I can't imagine how a corner of a street in London would but bad example um (laughs) (laughs) look a little bit like New York maybe if you're very short um (laughs) but also that this happens when you're in the States and um the first time I came you know I was looking out for things that I had seen in cinema because that was my introduction to America before coming here and then when you see them you'd like oh it's a tick in the box or you take a picture of it so there's a a kind of viewfinder set up in front of the eyes of all these filmmakers whether they're a- abroad or um back in their home countries i suppose because they're thinking okay america as topic yeah right yeah i mean a prime example of of america almost purely as topic or america as theorem or something i guess would be dogville oh yeah <laughs> um which another example of, of something not uh, and know, imagine geography imagine geography that's like the maybe the most extreme example because right, we got you got to imagine it yourself right <laughs> that's right <laughs> fill in the blanks um yeah lars von Trier didn't even bother 
coming to America. <laughs> I guess in his defense, because he has, I guess, a phobia of, of um, plane travel. Um, so, yeah, Dogville being this completely, I, I guess, basically straight up like Brechtian kind of representation of, of a village um, and just playing out his I keep I always think of that movie as a kind of theorem where he has this kind of, the, you know, thesis he wants to see play out about what would happen when a stranger comes to town um, and how does that actually play out as opposed to, you know, whatever American illusion we have about how that might play out. Um, but that is in this series. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about. Yeah, that. no, I just remember there is, I think Jay Hoberman has an essay on Dogville in the, Oh yeah. The book. And I believe if I, I might be getting it wrong, but I believe what he says is that, uh, it is said that America is the most Christian nation on earth and Dogville, um, gets at what exactly that might mean. Mm. Um, uh, which yeah. I think is a very succinct <laughs> right. way of putting it. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was almost, it was, that was actually also one of the, the trickier films to find, which is maybe surprising. Mm. Um, just because, you know, the, previous rights holder had lapsed and it all worked out in the end. But, um, I think that, uh, this might be surprising to someone who just enjoys going to films, but, uh, uh, hasn't been involved so much on the programming side of things that, uh, what you might expect to be, uh, incredibly available is actually, can actually be more elusive. Yeah. It's not just a matter of just picking the title and then, yeah, and here it is. <laughs> Voila. If only. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, that's 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 also, I mean, Dogville, it was definitely controversial, provocative at its time. And, I mean, you could see some parallels to, to a film at that point, you know, to, to where we are now. Because that film's 2003, so America very much in the throes of, like, post-September 11th, examining what it means to be America because to be American and, and, and our, our role in the world, um, very much where we are now. Um, I guess I should just make the obligatory like timestamp on this particular podcast that ironically, we're talking about films about uh, views of America at a time where, you know, we've just had mass shootings, which is, I mentioned because that's always a perpetual source of fascination and revulsion for the rest of the world, really for, you know, how that happens in, in the U S. Um, I, I think it would, it would be weird if I didn't mention that in a way because, uh, so yeah, again, another way in which uh, I, don't, um, I guess you could morbidly figure that that was going to happen at some point. Yeah. I have a, a question um, f for you, I guess, because I'm watching these films as someone who's relatively new to the States and they give me a very broad um, selection of insights into America from the very peculiar to the very mythologized and, and familiar and everywhere in between and I was thinking about how is it possible that some of these filmmakers get America for you in surprising or more accurate ways than uh, a homegrown perspective and the parallel here might be I don't know someone like Joseph Conrad who learns English when he's oh, 19 yeah. and mm. and it, in only learning later on in his life, mm. gets this incredible grasp and and uh, particular grasp of language. And do you think that that could be the same for some of these films? Mm. I think absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, for instance, uh, it's another surprising double bill that kind of came up as we were moving things around on the schedule was Showgirls and the House of Mirth. Mm. And... Uh, I feel like here you have two movies, one you know, by Paul Verhoeven, one by Terrence Davies, that seemingly could not be more different <laughs> in their, you know, respective milieus, and yet I think that they get at something about the gladiatorial dimension to uh, an American obsession with status, social position, um, that. Uh, you know, is uh, does not have many rivals, and um, so yeah, and I, I think that that uh, that they they definitely sort of see America more acutely, perhaps than uh, many of their U.S. 
contemporaries. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't sort of, you know, generalize or um, essentialize, but uh, no, yeah, I think that they, you know, uh, they get to the, the heart of the matter just in uh, very different arenas. <laughs> I, I wonder if I could ask about one particular title in the series, which I guess is something that's sort of an installation loop in a way. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, 29 Palms. Yeah, so that's another thing that I've... I, since I've started um, uh, organizing programs for Film at Lincoln Center, I've always thought that there's a, sp- a place for installation that's, uh, you know, could uh, be more frequently used. And uh, so I, I thought of uh, Amile for as, as the first installation that was up this past weekend. Uh, Amile is primarily known as a photographer, very well known as a photographer, uh, but she's made a few forays into moving images. And uh, I believe this was one of her first. It's related to a suite of photographs um, uh, at a training base in California, which is where, uh, you know, new, uh, where, rec- you know, recruits would, uh, undergo kind of field exercises, uh, in anticipation of, uh, their sort of departure to Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. Um, and she structures it as a very elegant, silent diptych where you have, uh, these intimate close-ups on one screen of uh, all of the soldiers uh, receiving their briefing. Um, and then the other one is this vast expanse where you can see the figures sort of like maneuvering through the desert landscape and as these sort of plumes of smoke, uh, you know, uh, kind of curl silently uh, around them and it's really haunting because it's uh, the combat is staged right it's then their training exercises mm-hmm. they're not real um, but they are a rehearsal essentially for America's imperial project abroad and Amule really uh, doesn't this is not like uh, there's not a kind of explicit political statement in the work or in like most of her photographs, like they're more porous, I guess you could say. And, um, uh, she came to the country, uh, and to the U S as a, as a, uh, as a teenager, as a refugee from Vietnam. And she spoke about this and a few other projects as being, uh, shaped very much by her experience as, uh, as a refugee. Um, and so I thought this was, in a way, a very kind of potent image for the series, which was like an image of America, uh, literally an image of America, like an American landscape, but that it was uh, standing in for uh, a foreign one, and specifically mm. a foreign one that was going to be uh, occupied by an American military presence. Yeah. Yeah, is it? It's, there, I think there was a documentary. I don't know about ten years ago about the same training comp. Full mm. battle rattle was that about oh, the same? I haven't seen subject? that. I don't know. I think I had to write a timeout blurb about it once. Um, yeah, but that's. But I, I also have to ask. Of course, there's the Bruno Dumont movie, Twenty Nine Palms. Oh yeah. And <laughs> but that's not the Twenty Nine Palms we have here now. That's that's a movie I was recently talking um, about with. I think Ari Aster at, and um, yeah, I was just having trauma re- recalling that movie again, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, I mean, so I don't know that that's, I think we probably have, have gone through most of the, the lineup. I, I do want to just flag for Jane Campion fans and, and others. If you could go ahead. <laughs> no, sorry. I just was so overwhelmed yeah. with excitement when yeah. I saw where you were going with this yeah. is that, um, yeah, we can, yeah, we're also showing in the cut as part yeah. of the series, which I think is an incredibly underrated movie. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and also really gets at, uh, the strange post nine 11 atmospheres in New York. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's not, it doesn't come up, explicitly so much like you'll see like this american flag you know uh 
you know, like waving and <laughs> the, the, the heat or something, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's able to conjure something about the strangeness of, of New York in the summer compounded with mm-hmm. the strangeness of it being less than a year after this event and the city yeah. is still kind of recovering from it and everyone's a little on edge. Yeah. I vividly remember seeing that when it came out at the landmark sunshine, which was always over air conditioned, but may it rest in peace. Um, and I just, I just thought it was just this beautiful, like I'd say textbook example, but just let's say exemplary, um, execution of like a subjective cinema on like a, on a grand, grander scale. Um, and this beautiful combination of like very personal, um, path, uh, through New York, um, with like some sort of crime narrative, blah, blah, blah. But, but also that kind of sense of New York in the summer and post, post September 11th, all, all wrapped together. I always thought it was a crime that it was like dismissed the way it was, but she's come back in yeah. full force. Fortunately, I remember Jay Hoberman uh, referred derisively to the spooky wind chimes of the soundtrack. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a, a, a genius film critic, but he's he's wrong on in the cut. <laughs> <laughs> Hoberman wrong on Campion. Um, yeah. Uh, any any final thoughts on on the series? From any any quarter. Um, you do have, I think you, you made a reference to class relations, but you didn't literally mean the film class relations, but that oh, no, film I is meant, also yeah. in the, in here. L- lowercase yeah. CL class relations and Poto Cabango. Yeah. Uppercase Stribuye. Although that was interesting because <laughs> the word you used was status or status, yeah. not class. And at that, actually I was thinking, hmm. this is really interesting how, how, Terence Davis may be coming at it thinking about class because we talk about that and use that word a lot more in Britain. Yeah. And then it transfers subtly, but I think differently to status mm. in the US. Well, and also in, in Showgirls, it's maybe more about status, I guess you could say. Uh, and then, and then with like in Wharton world, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely about class and the, and the really sort of subtle uh, nature of sort of class distinction and how it's both uh, in some ways uh, aping a old world kind of model of aristocracy, but like in this totally different economic uh, context. Um, and which is, um, yeah, maybe part of what is peculiarly American about it. Um, but no, yeah, there is, that. that is, that is an interesting distinction yeah. yeah um so i mean that's that's we've been talking about another country uh series at film at lincoln center and this continues through i don't have the exact dates but through more of august for sure um and uh i since this is the 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 rep report i i just thought i'd talk about a few other series going on um in in town as well um i'm always like I have anything to do with it. I'm always weirdly proud of all the stuff that's going on in New York, all the people, smart people I know putting together a really interesting series. Um, but, uh, for example, over at anthology film archives, they have a real young girl, which is a series, um, basically devoted to, I guess, teenage and adolescent, um, um, experience, uh, for young women. And the title is a takeoff of the, the, the um, movie by Catrambrea. Okay. No, no, it's it's um, or it, yeah, it is. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. I mean, for a second, I was going to say Nellie Nellie Kaplan. Oh no, that's a very curious, a girl. very curious girl. Right, that's right. Yeah, which I think that I think I did interview Catherine Brea once and ask her about that, and and she did begrudgingly admit some echo of it, um, and that she was interested in her films. Um, but yeah, that's 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 an interesting series, and somewhat along those lines, at BAM, um, they have a series uh, about '80s women filmmakers. Um, has some long title punk valley girls etc i'm gonna mangle it but uh also and they just wrapped up their millennial series uh, which is a um, interesting attempt to historicize millennials um, who are yeah are part of our history now um and i i also of course i was i was dutifully preparing for for this this series another country but i also ducked into film forum this weekend because they have a burt lancaster monster of a series mm. uh so i went to see a, the strange and wonderful film the swimmer um starring burt lancaster 
uh, in adaptation of a John Cheever story, yeah. I think. Um, I I just I just love love imagining this movie in 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 theaters. Then um, it's 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 because it's almost like a formalist experiment in a way. Let's create a, a drama out of a person traveling from one house to the next in suburbia by means of you know on the pretext of of, tr- of swimming through people's swimming pools, um, and yeah, you'll go from Burt Lancaster who is you know this this kind of model of a man still in his 50s then by the end just a shell <laughs> basically spoiler alert yeah cheever has mixed feelings about suburbia <laughs> um but just incredible movie um directed by frank perry who also did um plays play it as it lays and pretty poison and lots of other interesting um america skeptic films <laughs> Um, so I don't know, but Thomas, you've seen the swimmer, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Not for a while, but I have, I still have very vivid, yeah. uh, image of Burt Lancaster yeah. <laughs> in, in his trunks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I also saw old boyfriends at Metrograph. Oh, I haven't seen that. I, I don't want to say much about it. I think I just got to think about it more. It's, uh, Joan Tewksbury who wrote, um, Nashville, Nashville. Yeah. yeah. And and more power to them. They're giving it, I think, a whole run. Um, and interesting companion piece or parallel to, to The Swimmer, um, although 10 years later, uh, kind of about a woman revisiting her past um, and trying to reassemble it or in some way and not having maybe too much more success than um, Burt Lancaster does. Actually, more s- success. Uh, spoiler alert. But, uh, but less swimming. But But what? But less swimming. Less swimming, yeah. Um, there is a swimming pool scene in it, though. Um, I think with a with a, yeah one one of the old boyfriends. Um, yeah, truth in advertising. It's about old boyfriends. Yeah. No, she visits some. Um, weirdly written by Paul Schrader. Oh, yeah, that's another interesting twist to it. Um, but I could go on about all the things that are are, are showing. Um, there's seventy millimeter things. Uh, so <laughs> There is a 70 millimeter series. Um, films are things, you know, <laughs> at the Museum of Moving Image, and the Quad Cinema has interesting Quad Cinema has interesting series on beach reads, so adaptations of of those for for film. Um, so I just like sort of mentioning all the um, florilegium of offerings <laughs> in New York rep cinema. Um, um, and before we wrap up, I also have some just announcements, housekeeping announcements to to mention. One is that if you like what you've been listening to, uh, we do invite you to subscribe and support Film Comment Magazine, which is uh, a nonprofit endeavor. Uh, and we do, in fact, have a, fa- a flash sale for, uh, with a discount. So you can investigate that um, on our website. Uh, and another thing is our Critics Academy, which is going to be held at uh, New York Film Festival, as it is every year. And the Critics Academy is where we have a series of, I guess you'd say, I don't know, seminars, rendezvous um, with uh, young critics. Um, but you got to apply to do that. Uh, you'll find all the information on the Film at Lincoln Center website. Um, and that's a worthy experience every year. So those are my two little mentions. Either of you have any announcements you want to toss in here? No. <laughs> oh, actually, yes. exactly exactly one year ago, I was on a Critics Academy with you and we oh, recorded a podcast. That is true, yeah, at, and, and, in La Carna, which is is a kind of cousin to, to, to the New York Critics Academy. Um, now has now been franchised and makes billions of dollars. Um, this is true. So you see what can happen um, when, when you're in the Critics Academy. You become an upstanding citizen. Um, on, and Yeah, anyway... Uh, I'm going to stop now because everyone's just laughing at me, not with me. So, but thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.
save 50% on a subscription to Film Comment magazine through our limited time only flash sale. Founded in 1962, Film Comment is the home of independent non-profit film journalism. Our special New York Film Festival issue features the essential movies of the season. Go to filmcomment.com/subscribe for a year of Film Comment for 14.95 instead of 29.95. Offer ends August 11 at midnight. That's filmcomment.com/subscribe. Support Film Comment and support independent film journalism. Through his writings, photography, and original music, as well as interviews with his family, friends, and co-stars, Love Antosha is a celebration of the extraordinary unfinished life of actor Anton Yelchin. Opening Friday, August 2nd in LA and Friday, August 9th in New York. Visit antonyelchindoc.com for more information.